what triggered this bizarre behavior. Journey into the cold heart of northern darkness with Nordic crimes. That case uh, became like a scene from a horror movie. A new true crime documentary series that chilled the bone. The hunger for killing is increasing in the course of these homicides. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Nordic Crimes is a part of the ACAST family. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello. And welcome back to One Minute Remaining. My name is Jack Lawrence, the host and creator of this show. This is part two of a fascinating discussion that I had with Dr. Carl Scher, a professor of psychology at Central Michigan University, whose research focuses on police interrogations and false confessions. In recent years, some US states have moved to outlaw the use of lying to minors during interrogations as it's shown that it can have absolutely devastating effects, such as it did in 1998. There's also a case, if if you want to think that we wouldn't ever use these techniques on children in California with Michael Crow, he wasn't ever wrongly convicted. They fortunately dismissed the case. But his sister, he I think he was 14 years old and his little sister had just been killed. And they interrogated him across multiple days. They told him that they had his fingerprints and DNA at the scene of the crime. And and for a kid, this this is so powerful that he actually internalized belief of his own guilt. By the end of the interrogation, they had created in him a belief that he constructed this alternative personality. Um, there was a good Michael and a bad Michael, and, and the bad Michael must have just killed her. The murder of 12-year-old Stephanie Crow took place in her bedroom inside her home in California. Sometime between late night, January 20th, 1998, to the early morning of January 21st. Stephanie's parents and grandmother found her body on the floor of her bedroom on the morning of January the 21st. She'd been stabbed multiple times. There was no sign of forced entry. Stephanie's window was found unlocked, but 
A screen was in place and there was no disturbance of accumulated grime and insect traces. A sliding glass door in her parents' bedroom was also unlocked. No knives were found at the scene that seemed consistent with a murder weapon and no bloody clothing was found despite an exhaustive search. Stephanie's 14-year-old brother, Michael Crow, was interrogated for hours by police using, again, the Reed technique. What are some things we want to learn here, do you think? If I know who did it, if I did it. Okay, well, let's, let's, let's do that then. Do you know who, uh, let's say, took Stephanie's life? Yeah. Okay, would that be a good, fair question? Yes. Okay, do you know who took? Do you know how she died? This was without his parents' knowledge whatsoever and without any legal representation. Michael would deny any involvement hundreds of times during the interrogation. The following is part of Michael's interrogation that by now has already been underway for some time. And in fact, Michael has recently undertaken what they call a voice stress test, essentially much like a polygraph. Michael is asked a series of questions while a machine is said to be monitoring his reactions. Are you sitting down? Yes. Do you know who took Stephanie's life? Yeah. Is today Thursday? Yes. Did you take Stephanie's life? No. After the test, detectives would return. And surprise, surprise, it would appear that on that question in particular, it shows that Michael was being untruthful. Inside, you're about ready to burst. We can't bring her back. She's gone. Okay? You're fighting it. You're... you're, you're I don't know what to do anymore. I understand. You haven't been told that I'm lying. I'm, I'm not, not saying... Michael, I'm not saying that. Have you heard me say that? What if they come back and say to you, Michael, we have your hair in her hand, and all of a sudden... You go, now what? I mean, what are you going to do at that point? I mean, at that point, I would, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> hypothetically. Could that have happened? No, not that I know of. Not that you know of. I, like I said, I would have to be completely unaware of it. Okay. <laughs> have you ever blacked out before? No, never. I believe him. <laughs> if I knew who did it, you would know. Everyone would know right now. Believe it or not, at one point, under advice from a psychologist, detectives suggest that there could be two Michaels, a good one and a bad one. You know, there's a lot of blood. It's very difficult. It's very difficult. You mean stay with me, Michael. It's very difficult for the person who did it not to not to, to get blood on them. Yeah. Okay. And not to transfer that blood to other parts of the house. Yeah. We found blood in your room already. God. Where'd you find it? Pardon me? Where'd you find the blood? I, I'm sure you you know What? God, I don't I no, I don't know. I didn't do it. I swear to that. Does that mean you can't tell me about the knife? What are we talking about? Okay. I... What are we talking about? You're 14? Yes. You got your whole life ahead of you, don't you? Yeah. Oh, God. Why? You tell me. 
<laughs> Why are you doing this to me? If I did this, I don't remember it. I don't remember it. And you know what? That's possible. And then they would hand the 14-year-old some paper and a pen and suggest that he write a letter to his deceased sister asking for her forgiveness. It would be in this letter that Michael first shows signs of his apparent guilt. And upon their return, the detectives start to get Michael to tell them what he'd done. How many times did you stab her? The only issue with Michael's account of stabbing his sister three times was that the autopsy had shown that she'd been stabbed, in fact, eight times. So, of course, the detectives just accuse him of more lies. Give me, give me some of these details. Not your, not your hollow lying. Sadly, it wouldn't just be Michael who was subjected to the detectives' interrogation techniques, as two of Michael's friends were also interrogated confessed and charged with Stephanie's murder. Michael was supposed to go in there and sort of take care of keeping Stephanie quiet. Mm -hmm. And Aaron was supposed to go in and take care of the business. It was going to happen. And I was going to dispose of the knife when it was done. Michael came back a little while after that and he was rinsing the knife in the sink. Thankfully... Because these interrogations were conducted in such an egregious manner, combined with other evidence that pointed to a transient schizophrenic who lived in the area, the boys were eventually declared to be factually innocent by a judge. I'm sure you've probably sat through, you know, countless interrogations and, and watched them. I mean, is there any that stand out to you as one that you've just shook your head and just go, you, you couldn't believe that this was even happening? You know, every new one, not every new one, but it, it seems like very frequently I, I see a new one and, and I hear about a new one or, or I'm involved with a new one. And I, I think, wow, who could have ever thought this, this can't get any worse or, mm. or this is, this is so unbelievable. The, the Michael Crow one really, really stings, even though that wasn't a wrongful conviction. I mean, yeah. it, it was a young kid. A lot of the, the ones where they get young kids, especially young kids with mental health issues, to confess, it is really depressing because they are very much less able to resist um, compared to a, a healthy, well-adjusted adult. Um, even though healthy, well-adjusted adults confess, it's the ones with the the younger kids um, and, and the younger suspects that that really, really, you know, are are devastating um, and and they're tough. You watch these interrogation tapes and how it's playing being played out, and you sit and you think, if I was on a jury, there's no way I would have convicted. But then I suppose you don't know when you've you know thrown with everything else when you're sitting there. You know, if you were on a jury and all the other bits and pieces they bring to you whether you would say guilty or innocent or not. And that's where I think the jury system as, as well, I mean, obviously it's used globally, the jury system, but I, I, I find that the whole jury system to be so fraught with, <laughs> fraught with danger. Nine times out of the ten, the people in that jury don't understand the law, <laughs> for one. I mean, let alone, right. let alone the psychology behind someone falsely confessing. You think of the the best case scenario for the jury, they're able to watch the interrogation, but but often that doesn't happen because there's nothing to watch. And so you have this written statement. It's really hard to glean anything, coercion from that, emotion from that. And then you might have a, a bunch of other processes that are operating in the background that the defense doesn't even know about because they were never disclosed. 
And, and so the jury never even hears about. And, and so you're really asking the jury to make a decision blindly. And, you know, it. I think many of us, given the information juries are often given, would have arrived at the same conclusion. But if we're given the, the full picture, um, I would hope that most of us would arrive at a different um, conclusion. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One of the, the cases I think that really shifted things in the U.S. in a variety of ways was a, a a case involving uh, five young uh, gentlemen in New York City, the, yeah, what we call the exonerated five now. Yeah. Um, and the fact that interrogators in that situation could go through and get five people who uh, a couple of them were acquainted, but most of them didn't even know each other. You get five people to confess to the same crime as though they they knew each other, as though they had work this out and plan this that's that's amazing um that just shows how intense and theory driven confirmation bias driven these interrogations are right we have this idea you five did it you were involved in some way and we're going to get a product at the end to support that belief. How do you do that? How do you get five people to come to that ultimate conclusion that, you know, as you said, they didn't know each other, but all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you've managed to not only convince that they're a group, they've worked together, they've planned this thing, and you've done it individually. I mean, that, as you said, is quite mm-hmm. an incredible thing to do. It's almost like a freaking magic trick. You've got five people who don't know each other to all of a sudden c- agree that they plan this, this crime. She was dragged down the bushes near what is called the lock, where she was beaten and sexually assaulted. Rape in the first degree, sodomy in the first degree, sexual abuse in the first degree, attempted murder in the second degree. This is Alec Roberts in New York. There were more indictments today in the brutal gang rape of the 28-year-old Wall Street executive. Five teens between the ages of 15 and 17 were charged with numerous rape, sodomy, and assault counts. Pleas by their attorneys for bail were denied. 
All of the defendants gave videotaped statements to police implicating themselves or others. But some of their attorneys charged today that police obtained the confessions by force. The Central Park Jogger case, or sometimes referred to as the Central Park Five, is an extremely well-known case and many documentaries have told the story, including a biopic on Netflix. It was a criminal case concerning the assault and rape of a woman in Central Park in Manhattan, New York, on April 19th of 1989. My name is Elizabeth Letterer. I'm an assistant district attorney in New York County. I'm going to ask you a few questions about what happened in Central Park on the night of April 19th of 1989. Before I go any further, I want to warn you of your rights with respect to statements you make now. You have the right to remain silent and to refuse... On the night of the attack... Dozens of teenagers had entered the park and there were reports of muggings and physical assaults. Six black and Latino teenagers were indicted in relation to an assault on a woman who was jogging through the park that night. Antron McRae, Kevin Richardson, Yusuf Salam, Raymond Santana and Corey Wise. Known as the Central Park Five, now the Exonerated Five, were all brought in for extensive interrogations about the incident. In fact, Corey Wise, who was 16 at the time, was apparently not even involved in the disturbance at the park at all and had just attended the police station as support for his friend Yusuf. The taped interrogations took place on the 21st of April after detectives had finished unrecorded interrogations of the five, who had been in custody for at least seven hours prior. The interrogations all began very similar, the boys telling the district attorney questioning them about other crimes that night, but they had no knowledge of a rape. Did you see a female jogger with blonde hair? No. Did you see a woman who was assaulted and raped? No. Did you know who he was accused of raping? No. Do you know anything more about it now? No. Many of the boys didn't even know each other, some having met just that night after they'd been arrested. Kevin Richardson, is he a friend of yours? I don't really, really know him, no. I went by him for like a couple of years. How about um, Raymond Santana? No, I just met him last night because we were handcuffed together. Eventually, all of them would begin to offer up confessions about the attack. I can't apologize for the days it's too late. What I've got to do is pay up for what we did. Each of them offering up completely different accounts of who was doing what and what had actually occurred. When they caught her, did they, what did they do to her? Did they grab her? What did they do? They pushed her down. Somebody was pushing her down. They grabbed her shirt. And she fell. She fell? Yeah. And who was, was grabbing her shirt? Antoine. Everybody was around them. So they thought, like, taking um, a bra off. Okay, did somebody take her shirt off first? Yes. Who took her shirt off? Raymond took her shirt off. The only things their statements had in common were in fact that each boy would implicate the others as the main perpetrators and would just place themselves at the crime, only playing a small part in the attack. What were the others doing while Kevin was struggling with her with the wrists? Anton was going for her clothes. No place was going on. What was Anton doing to her clothes? Trying to pull them out. Another thing they all had in common with their apparent confessions was that when asked to describe what the woman looked like who was attacked or what she was wearing, none of them could give a description. What was she wearing? Were you getting closer? Yeah. It ain't hit, beat up a lady. At first I thought the lady was a man. Okay, what did the lady look like? I don't know, I ain't see her. 
Well, you said at first you thought she was a man. Yeah, because they were beating her up. What did you see them doing? They was punching her in her face. Um, Kevin told, told them to stop Steven Lopez in between that lady's legs. Okay, let's stop and, and do it a little bit slower. You see some people beating up a lady? Sure. What was she wearing? Was she wearing running clothes? I couldn't see. Why couldn't you see? Because people was on top of her. Eventually, all charged with the crime, within two weeks of their confessions, each of the five recanted. Together, they claimed that they had been intimidated, lied to, and coerced by police into making false confessions. While the confessions were videotaped, the hours of interrogations prior to the confessions were not. All of the boys were eventually convicted, even though DNA recovered from the woman who was attacked that night did not match any of them. They were each given the maximum penalty of between 5 to 10 years in a youth correctional facility. Apart from Corey Wise, who was 16 at the time of the crime, and because of his age and the violent nature of the felony charge, he was tried and sentenced as an adult, receiving between 5 to 15 years in an adult facility. 13 years later, they began to personify something else entirely. Matias Reyes, a serial rapist and murderer, confessed to the crime. His DNA matched what was found at the scene. The five teens, now all men, would be exonerated and eventually compensated. Y'all don't really understand what we went through. Y'all tried to do dehumanize us as human beings. People called us animals. We'll pack. Sometimes I watch this, you know, and I see them offering up what happened to these people. And I'm thinking, does the detective know that this person has nothing to do with it? Now he's just feeding this person what he needs to hear. I, I think it, it varies is the, the kind of answer you don't want. But I think it I think it varies. I think there are certainly times that they they're just looking to close this case because mm. there's so much pressure on them to do it, um, because they're getting pressured by a prosecutor who's going up for election um, and, and so they're just willing to solve this for, for optics, essentially. I think in, in a lot of other instances, um, it might start as something that is uh, a moderately strong belief and, you know, not necessarily intentionally, but they go through a, a, a series of questions and they go through a series of mental gymnastics in their own head. And by the end of it, they're utterly convinced that this person is guilty and they don't even appreciate their evolution of, of how strongly they believe in this person's guilt from beginning to finish. So I, I think it, it does vary. Um, and, you know, unfortunately it's not a, like a straightforward, clear answer, but certainly there are times when they're not even certain of it, but they're just doing it for um, external reasons. Yeah, and I mean, you say the word there that I hear so often doing the work I do, they were under a lot of pressure and you hear that so much when it comes to investigations. It's like, oh, there was a lot of pressure to get this one solved and you son- suddenly think, you know, when does the, the, the pressure becomes to the point where it's like, well, we just got to get this solved. Whether they're innocent or guilty, we've just got to get this solved. When I say solved, and, and, in, in inverted commas. Right. And, and, and where is the pressure to get at the truth? That's what's really um, maddening. Why couldn't there be pressure to, to get it right? And, and what's, um, you know, something we other, uh, haven't 
talked about as well is not just with false confessions, but with wrongful convictions in general, many of the, the perpetrators, because the perpetrator, actual perpetrators aren't apprehended and convicted, go on to commit other murders and sexual assaults. Yeah. And, and it, you know, these aren't a, just a handful of those cases. There are tens of these cases where additional um, young women were sexually assaulted and, and additional people were killed. If you would have just had some pressure to get at the truth and, and get it right from the outset. I mean, there's cases out there now where even other people have come out and confessed to a crime that someone else has been convicted of, and it's still not enough to get them out of prison. It's crazy. Right. And yeah, it, it is. It is. It is mind blowing. And, and there are even cases in which someone does get exonerated. The person has confessed to it, but they don't pursue that person. They've, they've, you know, will will tally it up to, well, the jury has spoken, they got it wrong, but, you know, it, it's over, um, which just is, is mind-blowing. It doesn't make any sense. To get a wrongful conviction overturned is just, it seems to be an extremely difficult thing to do because, you know, you're asking a judge to look at an, a verdict from the, jury, from the jury and say, well, actually, they got it wrong. And the more of those that sort of keep creeping up, the more people go, well, hold on a second, something's terribly wrong here. There's cases I've dealt with, a gentleman called Evaristo Salas, who, you know, evidence with, was withheld from the, the defence, like key evidence, you know, that, that had been fabricated statements. You know, there was other wit- another witness, or sorry, another um, suspect, uh, and all this was withheld, and he was still convicted, uh, 15 for a murder, 27 years still in prison now, even after all this has come out, it's been put in front of multiple judges who have looked at it and gone and just gone, uh, just wiped it away, and it's just like, what are you doing? Right. Yeah. And it, I mean, in the U.S., we the Supreme Court is is on multiple occasions really prioritized finality, which is why do you prioritize finality over the truth? Uh, that that doesn't make any sense to me. If if you have a, a system of justice, the other problem also in the U.S. is that. Um, most of our cases are resolved with plea bargain. Yeah. You know, estimates range yeah. from 92 to 98%. And, and once someone pleads, it, it's even more difficult to, to get them exonerated um, for a variety of reasons compared to a, a criminal trial that involves a jury or, or a bench trial. Yeah, because, of course, the police go, well, this is your only option. You're going to go to, to trial and you could be looking at 100 years. But, hey, take our plea and you can do 30 years. Right. And, and you have states like Texas and, and others where you are offered, hey, you could go to trial and, and get the death, death penalty, penalty yeah. or you can plead to a deal. That's incredibly coercive. Who wants to take your chances? It, it, it doesn't matter if you're innocent or not. Who's going to take your chances of of getting a, a death sentence um, when you're being offered thirty or forty or or you know not some form of death? Here's a, a bit of trivia. Um, there's there's some research, um, and this is some of the some great research. I absolutely love it. Your chances of being exonerated in the U.S. at least are far greater if you're on death row than they are anything else. Because we we actually put a lot of resources into people who are on death row. And and the, the legal system is very, very, very scared of, of executing an innocent person. And so 
your chances of being exonerated are actually quite much better if you're on death row. But what typically happens is if there is some doubt of your guilt, your sentence then becomes a life sentence, which then it removes all benefit you have of all these attorneys and some really great attorneys if you're on death row. And now you're, you have a life sentence and you don't have those resources. You have one minute remaining. I want to say a big thank you to Dr. Carl for uh, giving up his valuable time to talk to us uh, about this fascinating subject, and we will have him back on the show to discuss the Saul Contreras case in more detail. I will put links and descriptions to all of the documentaries that we've spoken about in the show notes of this episode so that you can go and check them out for yourself. One Minute Remaining is a Mash Pumpkin production. Produced, hosted and created by Jack Lawrence. Editing and sound design by Jack Lawrence and Dom Evans. This show is part of the ACAST Creator Network. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.